Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, our verses tonight are verse 31 and 32. Two simple verses. Message seems to be simple, but it's a world of controversy surrounds two verses. Probably as much as anything in the New Testament, the content of these two verses. Now, before we read those, let's go back to verse 17 because we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is bringing forth out of the law, which we think is not for today, he refers to the law and the prophets as something that he has not come to destroy. He said, I rather I came to fulfill it because the message of the New Testament will come out of what's hidden in the old. How would we know anything about the holiness of God had not God described himself in that way in the Old Testament and then gave revelations to men like Paul so that we can see what they in that time could not see? It's very important for us to understand that the law, while it's not what we do in order to be right with God, it still proclaims to us a way that is holy and is pure and is proper. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, and he shows us six things just in Matthew 5. He brings out six aspects or six compartments of the law showing us how the way it was believed then is not the way it should have been believed. Or he brings out the deeper truth or the deeper light of the Old Testament. The six areas are murder. And you, you might say, I've never murdered anybody. I've never taken anybody's life. But Jesus says, but if you're angry with your brother without a cause, then it's akin to murder. And a lot of people would hear him say that and say, no, wait a minute, you're, you're way over our heads. Nobody can walk that way. And yet if Jesus is giving us a way to live that we cannot live, then we'd have to say to him, this isn't fair. But if he's giving us a way to live that he holds us to and sent his spirit to enable us to live this way, then we've got a challenge before us that we have to live this way. These anger tantrums and these angry moments and these little fits we throw and backbiting other people and, and talking against other people and tailbearing against, all of that's a form of unforgiveness. And it has to do with your relationship with people. You know, in the Ten Commandments, the first four is your relationship to God and the next six are relationship with each other. And defines them in Romans 13 by saying that the, the greatest of the commandments is loving the Lord with all your heart and so forth. He said, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's the way that you're going to prove to God that you're willing to do what he said. Anybody can talk about having a relationship with God. If you go to church or you said a prayer once or you did something religious or spiritual, that, that's, that is enough. And then we negate the fact that we have to live with each other. When I got saved and come to the Lord, and it was a time of, of to me of great learning, outpouring of, of understanding from the Lord upon those who wanted it, to hear it, a, a time that, uh, that brought us deeper than just, as for me, going to church. The challenge of living a life I never saw anybody live and learning things that I assumed that we just figured was too hard and, and being challenged to live this way. And once you begin to live this, this way, God begins to add to that peace and joy and all these other things. But you realize that you don't have to be angry. I can't escape living with you. God didn't save me to live alone by myself so I wouldn't have to put up with you. He put us in a little group together. And especially this particular church is different than most any other church in any community. Any community. Most all of you here came from somewhere else. Most of all of you here moved here. Very, very, very few people in this particular church is from Shelbyville. All the rest of us came here. I would like to say we came here as the Lord led us. That divine guidance brought us here. And it was not easy to get along. People from one part of the country had different way of doing things and 
people from another part of the country and people from one part of the country would be offended if you said something about the North or the South, you know, those dummies in the South. Everybody had to realize that we've got a lot of adjusting to do. Jesus holds us to it. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, I must define Christianity as living on Christ's terms. Not to argue with him, not to debate with him. He could have left me alone and I would have perished. But because he brought me and you out of miry clay and brought us to him and set us before him, he sets this book before us. Whether you're taught or not, it's there. He'll hold us to it. In fact, he said this word will judge us. So it's important for me to find out and learn what he says and then to do it. And back to where I was, you know, he starts in this chapter by saying that, that you're not allowed to be angry. Your brother, that person you're sitting beside is as important to God as you are. They have every much as right to the kingdom of God as you do. You're only in it because God invited you, and they're only in it because God invited them. And the only reason you responded because God gave you both the faith to believe what he said. Nobody's better than anybody else. You have no right, as he goes on to say, to call your brother names, to belittle another human being. And, and I've done it my whole life. But in, now that I see this, it's easier to work on it now because, man. And then he talks about in this same thing, he talks about lust. Last week we saw that. If you look upon a woman to lust after her. You're an adulterer. You have, in the eyes of God, you've committed adultery, a woman to a man. And look at all the temptation today on the media, TV. Well over 90% of all romantic scenes today portrayed in the media are with unmarried people. Kids are growing up thinking that's the way they're supposed to act when they get to be teenagers or they can get out and run around. They're supposed to act that way. They're supposed to show themselves that way and... Carry on like that. They're enamored by all of that stuff. And yet God condemns it. All of it. He speaks about divorce tonight. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he brings that up. And next, next time he'll talk about swearing. About swearing and taking an oath. And then he talks about taking revenge and getting even with somebody. That all of those things are condemned. In the Scripture, they were, there was a place for most of this stuff, depending on what the law said. But Jesus said, but I say to you, you can't do that. They could. God allowed that then. But you, if you want to walk with Jesus, you've got to walk this way. And he tells us all of these things because he ends this chapter by telling us to love our enemies. Loving your enemies. Who doesn't have an enemy somewhere? Is it that neighbor next door who's always this or that person who ran over your dog or something that you can't forget and you hold them in your own heart, you hold them as an enemy? Jesus said you bring your gift to the altar. you got to realize that your relationship with God is flawed. You need to go make something right with somebody that you have condemned in your heart and you don't like or you hate. You get that right. Get your personal relationship right with men and and then you come back. And we think, I don't know if anybody's ever done this. It doesn't matter. It's what he says. We have no options. There's no other choice. You can do other things. You can make a choice like that. But there's nothing else that is right. And so he brings out all of these things about the law. Shows us how it was corrupted by the Pharisees and the legal teachers, the scribes, and the lawyers of his day. But he says, but I say to you. And then he begins to point out the things that cause these folks to sit there with their mouths open. How can this be? But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people who heard him teach said, you know, say what you want to about him, but, but he's not like the scribes. This guy talks with authority, like there's something behind his words. And the impact of what's behind his words compels us to listen and to get convicted. Now, if you can walk away from hearing it and it doesn't bother you to hear these things, then, well, I don't know. Let's go to verse 31 and 32. This is the principle concerning the permanency of marriage. Let me say this because I'll deal with this later on. God intended for all marriages to be permanent. One man, one woman for life. That is not a put down. Tell me that this, that's not a put down. 
that God's original intention from the beginning, Adam and Eve, that far back, from the beginning, the termination of this union was not in God's plans. Moses allowed it. Jesus said, Moses allowed you to do that because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, this wasn't so. So I can just a little bit of reading right there. And I know that marriage was intended to be permanent. If you're going to enter into marriage, you enter into it as a Christian with the idea that this is it. This woman, this man for the rest of your life. No matter what happens along the way, no matter how things go, you're committed to that. Because it is a covenant that is made before God. Marriage was God's idea from the beginning. It is a holy state. And above all things about marriage, all the details about it, the commitments in it, the submission and the love and the care and all the things that go with cleaving and adjusting, it is a picture of Christ and His church. And let me say this. I believe Jesus has had many, many good reasons to divorce Himself from the church. Look how divided it is all over the world. How shallow in some places it is and how people just want a little Sunday morning meeting. That's all they want and not interested in teaching and a gripe and complain about it if we hear too much of it and that type of thing. And yet Jesus is still tolerant of us. I'm glad about that. I think the Bible word is long-suffering. And I look at myself and how many times... And I'm sure you would too. It drugged my feet spiritually. And I'm glad that he didn't disown me or put me away or turn me out and let me go. Because he that started the work in me, just like in marriage, when you start, you'll have conflicts, struggles, rocky roads and difficulties. But you work them out because for every problem we have in this life, God provides a solution. It depends on whether or not you love God enough to put Him first more than your feelings, your weaknesses, your failings, your frustrations, or anything else. And marriage in Ephesians 5 is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, seen in a woman's relationship to a man, a man's relationship to a woman. Now let's read it again. Verse 31, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away, that means divorce or set aside his wife let him give her a writing of divorce but that's Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 through 4 that's later verse 32 but I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication causeth her to commit adultery and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery that's pretty plain most of it is anyway. But this subject of divorce is not only a difficult subject, but it's also an avoided subject, a subject that most preachers know to leave alone. They're probably trained to leave this subject alone or else speak of marriage or divorce or the termination of marriages in general terms, making it so that everybody can have their own idea about what they did and who's at fault and your right to do something else and get on with your life and so forth. And when a preacher, for example, takes a stand on this subject and begins to say what Jesus said, and we begin to look at the lots and lots of information in the Bible about marriage and especially divorce and what follows divorce, uh, a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, we all know somebody that's been divorced and remarried, somebody who is tense when this subject comes up, and somebody that you love and like and you enjoy their fellowship, and you know when they have to think about this subject, you know it's going to bother them, and, they're, and you, you're going to feel for them and all of that. All I can say is that uh, we're all obligated, especially me. Woe unto me if I teach you wrong, and woe to you if you don't prove what I say to be right, or at least for yourself, to search the Scriptures and see if what you hear is true. How many of you know you don't have to believe anything I say? That was weak. But let me say all the rest of you. I'm not your conscience. I'm not your conscience. I'm a human being just like you. I take a shower every day just like hopefully you do. I'm a human being just like you. I'm not a crafty theologian. 
I'm a human being just hopefully with something special from God to impart a truth. And if we are offended by the truth, Jesus asked his disciples once, he said, are you offended at this saying? Remember that in John chapter 6 at the end of the book? He said, are you offended at this saying? Or one man when he was persecuted said by and by he was offended. And preachers know enough that don't preach about things that offend people. If you have to deal with it, be general about it. Give everybody the room to make a decision based on how they feel about it. I have found in debating, discussing, and talking, being challenged and trying to defend the stand that I take, that when it comes to this subject of divorce and remarriage, most people rely on not what Scripture says, but on the interpretation of somebody or some philosophy or sensible position. Like folks will say this about remarriage. Well, you know, now she went out and did this or that, and, and then she left me. She just divorced me. And I don't see why I should. Now, here we go with the philosophy part or the logic and the reason part. I don't see why I should have to have to suffer the rest of my life holding fast to what I, the commitment I made to her when she left me and she's got her another one. She's gone on. Why should I have to suffer for her mistake? And that's the position a lot of folks take, and they think that way. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, why should I? I'm going to go and, yeah, I mean, I'm going to get on with, with my life. She's one of the problem, not me. And everything is fine until this subject comes up and you start teaching on it and you begin challenging that mentality. Nobody's glad about the breakup of a marriage. Nobody has ever been happy because something that started out so good began to wind down into something that was ugh, really tough. Nobody's glad about the extramarital affair, we call it adultery, that somebody had. It just devastates a man or a woman, just devastates your manhood, your womanhood. I mean, it's just like a, you are being put down to the lowest degree. Another woman, another man. And it's hard for people, though they forgive, it's hard for them to really forget that. And he's out late, and, you know, you start thinking. The devil says, well, you know, probably what's going on. He did it once. And it becomes a difficult time in your life, even though he was not doing anything at all. He's suspicious. And then he gets that feedback from her. And he says, you don't trust me. And she says, well, look what you did. And brings it all this stuff up again because this is an area, this is an area I'm talking about that is very hard for people to forgive. And reconciliation, which is what the Bible teaches, always requires forgiveness. And some people want their wounds to be greater than God's mercy, and they won't forgive. I'm out. I can't. And off they go. That's why I say to all you young people, do not marry. And we can go to the next verse. Just don't marry. I don't care if she's pretty and he's cute and everything is perfect. Just tell him no. Just say I'm no. The Lord's coming. I want to be able to spend all of my time just seeking first the kingdom. Everybody said. <laughs> but I would say this again. Those of you, so many of you are coming into the time, but you're, you're old enough to be, at least start thinking about marriage. How do you know that the person you're so... Who about will not turn out to be somebody you wish you'd never met? That's why you should take your time. Ask a lot of questions. I tell young men all the time, if you're courting, make her mad once. I've asked them, have you ever made her mad? No. <laughs> you better make her mad once, see what she does. She might tomahawk your headpiece and then you'll, <laughs> you'll wish you never, you never, <laughs> I mean, you better find out. You look at their home, look at their background, look at everything. Everything that you see in him or her comes from where they came from, the way they were taught, the way they were raised, the way her, the disposition of her parents. Everything's involved. Now, in my situation, everything was wrong. I would never, ever have allowed my wife to marry me. No way. And see, here's a, here's a case that, that kind of breaks my rules. I just told you it worked out. Good.
The reason it worked out good was not because I tried hard, but because she wouldn't fight. And if your wife won't fight, she can't, you can't get into it. She just kind of endured that. And God saved us at the right time. And then all of this started to come to the surface, all the scum. And then we started getting straightened out. And then marriage takes on the beauty that God intended for it to have. A man and a woman in love all your life. The rest of your life. Looking forward to being together, going places together, sharing your hopes and your dreams and your joys and your successes, your failures and your woes. You share them all together. Always a shoulder to cry on, an arm to lean on, somebody who cares about you. Not your body, not your face, but your heart. That's the way marriage ought to be. You're two people working together. And when they terminate, when a marriage ends in divorce, it's never good. It just really isn't good. So Jesus said, but I say unto you, and he begins to set in order for us the meaning of the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, adultery by definition, and this comes from the fabled internet, adultery, also called philandry, is sexual infidelity to one's spouse and is a form of extramarital Sexual, we call that an affair. It originally referred to sex between a woman who was married and a person other than her spouse. And even in the case of separation from one spouse, an extramarital affair is still today considered adultery. So it has to do with an extramarital affair between married, at least one of the two are married. This is generally the way it was. But we know it doesn't have to be like that because Jesus said if you look upon a woman whether you're single or married, to lust after her, then you, whoever you are, single, married, young, or old, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. But adultery was considered mostly an act, something you did. A married man who had an affair, a married woman who had an affair, or a married woman with a single person, or a married man with a single woman, that was usually considered to be adulterous. And another definition was it's voluntary sexual activity between a married man and someone other than his wife or between a married woman and someone other than her husband. Exodus 20 again, verse 14 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we won't limit this to just married people. Because it, it can be married people. It usually does refer to, but it does not have to be. Would you turn to Proverbs chapter 6? Because I want to deal tonight. I don't want to take too many meetings with this, but I, I do want to make a point in the Sermon on the Mount about this point. Because I don't want five years from now somebody saying, well, I never heard that. I want you to know. I want you to have a chance to think about it yourself. Search the Scriptures on your own. Investigate this subject for yourself. Maybe you can be inspired to do that and reach the right conclusion or the conclusion that God gives, that marriage really is permanent and that He expects us to begin that way and keep it that way. As they used to say in marriages, till death do us part. A number of you that got married said that, you know, for better or for worse, which is true. I don't use the part in sickness and in health because I'd much rather be well. But that doesn't mean that there's not a time that a loving husband or loving wife sticks close to somebody who's not well. That's part of love. That's a part of your caring for, for your mate. And for better or for worse, till death, do you part. Let me say this to all of you that aren't married yet. If you can't marry that way, don't marry. And if divorce is an option in your life, I won't marry. I won't perform it. Somebody else will, but I won't do it. Because God never intended for anybody to have a mindset that, well, I'm going to get married in this covenant with God before God and these witnesses. I'm going to take an oath. But, you know, if it doesn't work out, doesn't work out, half marriages don't. Half of them in the church don't and in the world. If it doesn't work out, then I think I'll, uh, I'll just bail out because, you know, everybody else does. The preacher did. Look at him. He's divorced and remarried or this one or that one or some famous somebody. It must be all right if they do it. And again, you start basing your beliefs on logic and reason or somebody's human experience. You can't make theology out of the human experience. 
the human experience has to agree with theology. And it's your place to find out for yourself. I'll try to make it as clear as I can. But I want to begin by showing you how serious the word adultery is in the Bible. It's not just an event, an immoral, unlawful event that involves passion between a man and a woman, but it has judgment that goes with it. Trust me with this. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32. Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Now, does your Bible say something close to that? Well, what then are we supposed to think that that means? What is our conclusion about that? That doesn't seem to be a big deal. I mean, how many people do you know that are adulterous in their life or in their affairs? How many do you know that don't seem to have this happening in their life? I mean, again, he said, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. Well, what does that mean? Well, what you're doing is such a flaw and such a disgusting thing to God that to do this, you bring in judgment on your own life. It may not show up right now. It may not look like it. You may eat and breathe like you always have. You may go on your way and enjoy this or that. But you are doing something that will, as he ends this verse, you will destroy yourself. Now, again, that doesn't mean a lot to people. It's seldom ever mentioned like that, so we don't see what is so common today. I mean, how many extramarital affairs are there in America? Not divorces, just affairs. They're everywhere. We're used to it. We hear about it all the time. We talk about it. I mean, it's, just, it's everywhere. And sometimes it happens in the church. And it's disgusting to me, too, but it does happen. But he that doeth it destroys his soul. Now, when the Bible speaks about you doing something that destroys your soul, then you're not very smart or you lack understanding. Can I say it that way? If you knew that the next cigarette, you say, I just can't stop smoking. If you knew the next puff, the next puff would be lung cancer, would you take another puff? Yeah, well, nobody knows that. Play my game. If it could be known that the next drag on your cigarette would cause lung cancer, would you smoke? Now you say, oh, I can't help it. Then you're not very smart. You're controlled by your passion and your lust for cigarette smoke and what you feel like it does to you. If you knew the next strawberry you ate, I'm making this up. If you knew the next strawberry you ate would give you hives, would you eat it? I would like to think you're smarter than that because you value your well-being more than you do extra things like pleasure. If I'm about to do something, and you know, I, don't, I can't understand this about that, about kids today that take pills, dangerous pills that are prescribed for people with various problems in their body, and these kids will take these pills and sell them, mix them with other pills and take them. Do they not know that you can destroy your body the way it's supposed to function by doing that? They do it anyway because they like, they're addicted to that feeling, that high that they get. I guess that's what they get, that whoo feeling and, and whatever it takes to get that way. Or sniffing glue. Glue can have a deadly effect on your organs or your liver, maybe your kidneys. I mean, what you breathe in your mouth goes into your blood. It's what your lungs are for, is not only to take in oxygen, but to give off the waste. And what you breathe goes right into your bloodstream, goes right through your system. And where it stops off, these toxins sometimes have a deadly effect on an organ. You keep doing it, you're going to destroy yourself. I'm wasting my time telling a person who, who doesn't want to hear that. But he said here in this verse, you destroy your soul. That must mean that God is involved because the final tally about a man's soul is up to God. And so to commit this particular sin without regard to what it's going to cost you eternally, God says you're a man without understanding. You don't really know 
what you're doing. Look in chapter 2. Now again, I want you to follow me tonight. We're going to look at this without answering all the questions we have about verses 31 and 32. I want to just make it clear to you what adultery is and what it does. How God views it and the, and the cost of adultery. Because remember, Jesus said, you marry a divorced person, you commit adultery. Now, if adultery has a, has a penalty that goes with it, and it has eternal consequences to it, then you really should give heed to it. You ought to think about it. And again, don't believe it because I said it. I didn't write any of this. I don't enjoy teaching on this subject because I know how people wrestle with it and get irritated at you for talking about it. I didn't write it. But you got to deal with it. I've got to deal with it. In Proverbs chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. When wisdom entereth into your heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, that would be for Christians, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding will keep thee. You won't do a lot of things you want to do because you know better. And one of the things it does, is in verse 12, is to deliver you from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh forward things, who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the way of darkness. These are not people you should have as companions. Verse 14, Who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked, and they are froward in their paths. And notice verse 16 now. This is what verse 11 and 12 will do if you have verse 11 and 12. If you're there. This, add this to what it will do for you. To deliver you from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words, which forsaketh the guide of her youth and forgetteth the covenant of her God. For her house inclineth unto death and her paths unto the dead. Now, these are the kind of people that hobnob with this kind of a woman. She's not only wicked, and, a, and her house is a house of death, but all who go into that house to enjoy that moment of pleasure are having a pleasure with death. Let me go on. Verse 19. None that go unto her return again. They get hooked. Neither take they hold of the paths of life. How could they? Only God can give you that. That thou mayest walk in the way, and this is another benefit, that thou mayest walk in the way of a good man and keep the paths of righteousness and so forth. I turn to chapter 7. He describes there what happens when you want to have an affair. A single man, a single woman, and you know, I like to try this. I see what this is like. This is what you're inviting into your life. I don't know anybody... I'm not around those kind of people. I've never heard of anybody who lives a loose life who is spiritual. I've heard people talk spiritual because I've heard of preachers who preach in the pulpit. One had a church of 15,000 and came down hard against homosexuality when he himself was one. He said what people wanted to hear, but then he got caught. Another preacher, a worldwide millions of dollars a year preacher, the big, 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 was caught with another woman in another town. Just stuff like this goes on and on. I mean, we hear about the preacher than this, and, and the media loves to portray this because they want to take the meaning out of this. You don't need this. Look at the people that are propagated. Look at how they live. You don't, you don't need to listen to that. that. That stuff is no good. And they do it every chance that they get, and it's a shame. But they're destroying their own souls. I've never known any of them that came back fully restored. I'm sure they were forgiven. God's bigger than their sin. But I think you lose something. I think something lacks. If you hear a man before and then you hear him after, he's not the same man. He gave up something. Something didn't do well. But we're warned. You can do it if you want to. But you are warned. Listen in chapter 7. This is a little lengthy, but it's worth whatever we have to do to, to hear it. Verse 5. 
Well, it, it begins in the first four verses by the Word of God. Make sure you take the Word of God as your guide. Follow it and heed it and hold to it. Here's what it will do. Because wisdom would dictate this in verse 4. That they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I look through my casement, and behold, among the simple ones, the ones with not much sense, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. There's that word again, void of understanding. Passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and a subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is he without, now in the streets, and lieth and waited every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me this day. I have paid my vows. Therefore came I to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, and with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home. He has gone on a long... So this is an adulteress. He's gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him because that is his natural weakness, is sex. And the appeal to somebody that makes him think that way and comes on like that, it's hard to resist. It really is. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Now, it doesn't look like it because he had a good time there. He'll go back. He'll do it again. He gets a taste of that kind of life. He wants to do that often. He'll hang around people that do that. They begin to compare notes and new things and hang out where this is happening. And he gets this kind of thing in his heart. He becomes a whoremonger. That's what the Bible would, would call it. And he lives for his weekends to satisfy his lust and his passions because there's many people that beckoned this man to his house. No restraints. Let us take our love of the night and stay there till morning. But he will have a dart stricken through, stricken through his liver, and he knows not that it is for his life. Now, therefore, verse 24, Shelbyville, hearken unto me now, therefore, O you children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart decline to her ways, Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Notice verse 27. You read it by yourself first. This lifestyle you hear so much about all over the media, the books and the romantic novels that lead to this kind of activity. Your young folks, your desire to kiss and hug and experiment with with that to see if you can and you want to imitate those Hollywood uh, um, oh, um, uh, stars and you want to act like that and grunt and groan like that. If that's what you want to be like. Well, here's what it says. Her house is the way to hell. Does your Bible say that? Her house, where this stuff takes place, is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Do you suppose God would frown upon it that way? Then why, why do so many people do it without regard for what God thinks? Is it because they've never been taught? Or is it just because they're not Christian? 
And yet, not all Christians have been taught well. They could be, and maybe they will be, but a lot of Christians read a lot of things. I did when I got saved. I didn't know that was in here. I didn't know God felt like that. I didn't see, I didn't, never heard that before. But that's the way it is. Look in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple. That means without understanding. She doesn't have good sense. She is simple and knoweth nothing, but she looks good, and that's all that counts. <laughs> to a lot of men. For she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right in, in their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in there. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith unto him, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. No, who's going to know it? We're, nobody's going to find out. We're going to enjoy Come on now. Come on, don't be, don't be an old whatever, an old fogey. Verse 18, read it. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Let me ask you all a question. If in the context of adultery, being things like this and brought about like the Bible describes stuff is brought about, would a person, would a girl who does this enticing, flirtatious girl, oh, I'm not in a house somewhere, but if she's flirtatious, dressing seductively and trying to get his attention like that, is she on her way? Don't answer me. <clears throat> if a girl is trying to entice a boy by acting seductive, putting clothes on too tight, maybe, you know, revealing too much. It's pretty common today. Pretty common. And she does this for attention, and the attention she gets is from guys who want to have sex with her. Is she guilty? Is she alluring them? Come on. Now, she had a bathrobe on. She walked around town in the bathrobe. Nobody would look. But I'm not saying wear bathrobes either. I'm just saying that there are modest clothing, and, and here we go. There is such a thing in the Bible as dressing modestly, being chaste in your behavior, being pure and upright in your behavior, in your actions, in your speech, being modest in your dress so as not to cause anybody to stumble as they look at you and think adulterous thoughts. There's a young lady who thinks like that because she wants her heart to be right with the Lord. I don't want to cause any man to stumble or to think that I'm like all these recreational sex on Saturday night kids. There's no love involved. It's just it's a different age. Again, I grew up on the corner. A song, remember the, the, the song that I heard was standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. You were born in the 50s. You were standing on the corner giving all the girls the eye. You can't go to jail for what you're thinking. Well, you can go to hell for what you're thinking. And so, you know, there was songs inspire us to be lusty. Uh, dress inspires us to be lusty. You look at some of these stores that want you kids to dress like that trash in the window. Or you go by... Uh, uh, that place that, that, that nobody knows about is to call it something secret uh, that sells underwear. And some of the ways that they dress that, and the, I mean, it's all about sex. And when you get inflamed with that in your mind, and you start thinking like that, and you start abusing yourself with that stuff, you're on your way. You either listen to what God is saying. And deal with your heart and deal with your need for more than what you've got to resist and ask God to help you and pray for wisdom because wisdom says you do that, you're going to get on the wrong side of God and He could very well let you go. He could. Not that He does, but He certainly could. You need to realize that God is teaching us these things and saying these things to us not to try to make us squirm, but to show us how serious all of this is. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20, talking about judgment. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. 
See, verse 9 deals with the fifth commandment about honoring your parents. It doesn't say it deals with fifth commandments, but it says honor your parents, and anybody that doesn't, well, that's what happens. You put to death. How many of you know that the Bible says in the Old Testament, if you curse your mother or father, you could be put to death? You really could. If you wouldn't mind your parents, Deuteronomy 21 said, take him down to the elders of the gate, tell them what he's like, and then stone him to death. Stone him. We don't want anybody in Israel or in this nation thinking that you can do that and get by with it. We're going to stop it right at the door. In chapter 20 and verse 10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to shame. It doesn't mean death. What does it say? Wasn't there a case in John chapter 8 when a woman was taken in adultery in the very act? In John chapter 8, they brought him to Jesus and said, We caught this woman in the very act. What are you going to do about it? What do you think we ought to do about it? Well, Moses said to stone her, so what do you say? Remember what he did? This is New Testament. This is deeper than most people won't want to go. He just rode in the ground with a stick. Didn't answer him. What do you think? And he said, I think all of you that are without sin, throw the first stone at her. And the Bible said they being convicted by their conscience walked away, dropped their rocks. Disgusted, no doubt, because they wanted, they wanted something they could get to him over. They could accuse Jesus of something. But he said here, if a man is found with another man's wife, or is his neighbor's wife, you stone him. Put him to death. They die. You know what the population would be in America if this was a law? America would have a population of four or five hundred thousand. Not be more than that, I'm sure. Can you imagine in this hour, right now, the hour that we're in, what I'm talking about? If a man was caught with another man's wife, that you don't go to court and, and have a trial, you take them outside of town, and you put them to death. Boy, what would they say in Congress today if you did that? I'll tell you one thing that would happen. There wouldn't be much hanky-panking going on. A whole lot of that would cease, wouldn't you think? You know why? Because a guy would think, boy, as much as I'd like to uh, go this way, I, if I get caught and she blabs that mouth of hers real good, if I get caught or he blabs his mouth, I'm going to die for, over this. I don't think I'm willing to die for what we're about to do. So you have some understanding, a little bit of wisdom. You say, I'm going to do it. And yet, on, if, while I say it that way, I'm talking about getting physically caught. Does not God know? Could he not withdraw from you that urging of his spirit so that you can now go to church living like this, being cool, cheating people, lying, whatever you do? Sin, sin. You go to church, you get absolutely nothing out of it. You don't see much of what's going on and what you hear. You kind of, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, that's just what he thinks. I don't know about that. You don't realize that you're dying while you're sitting there. Death has already started a slow process of just taking over your life until one day, you know, the Bible does say God gave them up to their vile passions. He's talking about homosexuals, but it would apply sin is sin. And they begin to die. They didn't know they were dying. Adam and Eve, whenever they when they committed their sin, they begin to die. It took nine hundred years for them to die, but they begin dying. We're all in this room tonight. We're all dying. We're closer to death now than we were before we got here. I don't like thinking like that. Well, I, I don't either, but I'm just saying it to make a point. When you transgress God, when you sitting here tonight knowing what, let's call what little you have heard, but enough that your heart goes, ooh, you are now capable of sinning against God in such a way that he could withdraw from you his presence. 
It won't keep you from going to church. You won't stop sinning either. You won't get convicted any anymore. You'll just find yourself going, well, you know, I, I ain't nobody's perfect. I mean, you know, come on. And you live that way. Just things happen that way. Or also, look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22. Go forward two books. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. This is an interesting chapter. If you want to go home and read about tomorrow, about how to tell if somebody was a virgin or not when they got married, when he accused her of not being and so forth. It's interesting. Verse 22. And remember, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is nothing more than a repeating of the law before they cross the Jordan into the promised land. They're being reminded of what should prevail in all their decisions and all their choices. This is the Word of God. You've heard it when we got out 40 years ago. Now let me repeat it to you again. You know, we ought to repeat it every 40 years. And when you go in, remember this. And this is one of the things he tells in verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman that lay with the man. So shall you put away evil from the midst of you. Remember David and Bathsheba. Remember that? Second Samuel? What did Nathan the prophet say to David when Nathan told him a story about a man taking a man's only little sheep and he had a whole bunch, but he took poor man's sheep and killed it? David said, the man must die for he has taken a man's only little sheep. And he said, you are the man. Remember that? Thou art the man. Nathan the prophet said, thou art the man. This is what David said to Nathan the prophet about his affair with Bathsheba. He said, I have sinned against God. Not Uriah the Hittite, though he did, but his major sin was against what he knew better than to do. His sin was against God. And that's, that's what he said. You know what God said to him through the prophet? When David committed that affair, this is what God through the prophet told the king. He said, you... In doing what you have done, you have despised me. I'm sure David would have said, far be it from me. I don't despise you. And yet God said, now this is how God thinks. See, we don't think like God. He said in Isaiah 55, he said, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. As heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways. And David, David said, I don't despise you. Malachi chapter 3, God said to those people, said, how is it that you despise me? He said, we don't despise, Lord, no, we don't despise. He said, yes, you do. By the way you're living, by the choices you're making as to what you offer in your offerings, it is despicable. And you despise me because you know better. David knew better. But he lingered long when he looked at Bathsheba and he, when he had that affair a year or so later, whenever it was, and he got caught. God said, Because you have despised me and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Now, he didn't die because Nathan said, though he could have died, because that was a, a sin unto death, legally for death. He said, God has forgiven you or set this sin aside. Now, why would from one another? I don't know. But God does what he wants in the kingdom of men. And in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, God says, I will come near to you in judgment and against the adulterers. Trust me, in the last days, when I say this, Revelation speaks of, of those who will not be in the kingdom when it's all over. And I don't care if the church is full of people who are living with other men and women, sleeping around or living together. Uh, if they're living together, they're fornicators. All adultery involves fornication illicit sexual behavior, whether homosexual, married, or by yourself. Pornography. The word fornication comes from the word pornos, from which we get the word pornography. Lewd stuff like that, where the lewd behavior, lewd thoughts, lewd thinking. Fornication is a sin throughout the New Testament was punishable by being denied from the kingdom of, of God. You do that, you don't go. 
You want it that that bad, you, you get it. God won't stop you. But on judgment day, you will cry hard, hot tears, but it'll be too late. You won't be able to make it. God said so. He said, I will come near to you in judgment and against the adulterers. Now I want you to turn to Jeremiah and over in the middle of your Bible, chapter 7 and verse 9 through 11, because this probably could refer to church folks. We'll be thinking about all those other people out there. Those old bad non-church people. Well, listen to verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Now, I'm going to read this, and then you tell me if, if people like this do this in, in church. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Will you come? Will you be like that? Will you think that you can do whatever you please and, and nothing will separate you from God? Are you living with somebody, with somebody last, last night? You know, I hear little stories about some of y'all doing a little drinking. And you're going to act that way and use the profanity that I hear that goes with drinking and a little bit of activity like that. Are you going to bring your carcass in here and raise your hands? Love you, Lord. You're going to do that when you're living like the devil? Oh, nobody knows it? You'd be surprised. I knew a little bit about it. How do I know that? I just the wind blows sometimes. And when it blows, little voices, they come, you know. And sometimes you get them, you know. And you think, oh. What if I told you when I hear about some of the behavior of some of you that it does not surprise me? What if I told you that? I'm not surprised to hear the stories that I hear about some of you. Not very much. Just not say some of you. I don't mean, don't, I want everybody to say, what have I done? What have I done? You know who you are. You know who you are while I'm talking. You know exactly who you are. I'm not saying that you're lost in anything else, but I'm not saying you're saved either. I'm just saying I don't know where you are except sitting in here tonight. How did he know that? Well, just got a way of knowing things, I suppose. Again, that wind, you know. But I believe, he says in chapter 7 again, let me get back to that before we meddle in your little affairs. In verse 10, And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all of these things. Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes or a den of wine bibbers or drinkers or cursers or fornicators in your eyes? Is it okay to do that and come in here? What if I said tonight, I was real serious, if you're going to do like that, get out of here. Go somewhere else. There's a lot of places that don't care how you, if you do that. If you want to live with somebody, you can't do it here. Go somewhere else. Yes, I hate to see you go, but we can't put up with that. Is that okay? Not most churches will. Anytime you got to deal with behavioral things, you offend a lot of people. It's none of your business. On the other hand, if you have to give an account for the souls of men, then do you not have a right to deal with those souls? So... You know, you need to think about your life. God isn't forgetting anything. There's a book that God writes out everything. All the words, the thoughts, the little jokes, uh, and the flirtatious activity in your life. It's all right there. All the excuses you make for it, it's all right there. But it leads in the bigger picture to the worst disaster. And that is sins of the flesh. Sins of your flesh. Galatians 5. Let me show you what some of them are. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Now the works of the flesh, they are manifest, which are these. What are the first four? They're all sexual sins. They're all of your flesh. The only thing you've got that the devil can use is your flesh. 
You crucified, it's dead, he can't use it. He can knock on the door, and Jesus answers the door, and the devil says, I want Hamilton. He said, he's dead. What are you going to do with the dead man? The four things he said are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and being nasty, lasciviousness. Crude, lewd behavior. Those are works of the flesh. Along with idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, strife, emulations, wrath, strife again, seditions, and heresies. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things, what? Now, one of the things that men do that will keep them out of God's kingdom, one of the things is adultery and all kinds of sexual activity. Adultery being can be a state, a condition that one is in, or it can be an act like Jesus taught. You can think it or you can actually do it. And he said, those who do these things shall not inherit, in verse 21, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Just go back two books in verse 9 and 10. And read it again. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus is proclaiming His kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul, with revelation from Jesus, declares it this way. He said, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Don't be misled here. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Now, effeminate would be a person who allows himself to be sexually abused. It would often be referred to as, as homosexuality or some kind of perverted method or way. It goes on, and abusers of themselves with mankind. Abusers is a man who lies in bed with another man. It's homosexuality. It's not left out in the list of things that will prevent you from going to heaven. But an abuser with himself, with mankind, is in no worse shape than an adulterer because they're mentioned in the same verses. One is as bad as the other. They're both lost. Or they're both going the wrong place unless they both get straightened out. And God's big enough to straighten anybody out. Straighten me out. Straightened you out, didn't he? And so you look at all of this and you begin to find that the the price tag that God puts on, go back to Matthew 5 and where we started, we want to close. That the price tag that God puts on adultery, the worst effect adultery has is the state of adultery, the condition of adultery. Where Jesus said in verse 32, at the end of that he says, Whoever shall marry her that is divorced... Committeth adultery. Now, before you start saying, well, what about all those other things in verse 32? So we'll attempt to do that later, the next time. But I want you to see that even this, even the state, the condition of being married, no matter how you love a person, he's a perfect man. I'm telling you what, I didn't know such a good man. I didn't know such a woman that was out there. My first marriage was horrible. She was awful. He was awful. And it just didn't work out. He beat me, abused me, left me. Man, then I ran into this woman, this man. And it, it, how could anything, and we go back to logic here and get away from the word. How could anything so good be so wrong? And therefore, you justify what you do. You base your theology on your experience. And, and you can do that with anything. You can justify most any sin in the book. But to go back to this word, to bow yourself at the altar of this book, is to put yourself in a place where, God, I want to do it right. And sometimes you have to make some real hard decisions. Not many people will make those decisions, but you have to. I would rather have heaven than anything. I would rather know that at the hour of my death, I have an unhindered walk with the Lord, not a perfect one. 
I know I'm not perfect as much as you do, as much as you know I'm not perfect. But I would rather live as best I could the way I know and make it to heaven. And anything, any kind of a thing that's going to keep me from heaven, anything that God must judge, anything that God is going to judge, I don't want that on my agenda. Do you know what I'm saying? If it's something I need to get rid of, then I need to get rid of it. I may suffer and languish and hurt and be in pain, but I need to do what I need to do. Amen. Close your Bible. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for wisdom, all of us, and understanding that we be not simple, be not deceived, and be not led astray. Neither be anything I say or what anybody else says. But grant to us that work of the Holy Spirit whereby we see what you're saying as you show it to us and that we can prove what we believe by the confirmation of your word. Now I ask you to bless those that are here tonight, bless those who listen to this wherever they are. Grant us to be strong in the faith, but to also be willing to use our faith. For I ask you to bless us this way in Jesus' name. And all the believers said, Amen. Amen. You may stand to your feet. God is good. All the time, isn't He? I have decided myself to follow Jesus. No turning back. If you all will go with me, I will follow. If you all stick with me, then I will follow. Amen. How many of you could walk this way if nobody went with you? What if your wife and kids left you? Would you go? What if you lost your job, lost your money? Would you go? I have decided to follow Jesus. Help me. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. What are you going to do? No no turning back. No turning back. Turn to somebody and say, I'm not turning back. You're free to go. God bless all of you. Amen.